Good morning again. Welcome to the Horror in RPG Sales. Uh, my name is Bryce Perry. I'll be your moderator this morning. And joining me today we have... Hi, I'm Crystal Mazur. I am a um, freelance writer and uh, uh, developer. Hello, I'm Marquia McCarty. Uh, I was uh, the narrator, head story editor, producer, and director of Something Scary. Uh, it is a animated horror web series, uh, and along with that has additional stories that we, uh, fan-adapted stories that we then do for the podcast. Uh, along with that, I'm the marketing director for uh, Hunter's Entertainment, which is Outbreak Undead. Uh, I'm Brian Holland. I'm the marketing director for Chaosium, the most pertinent game we make for this conversation is Call of Cthulhu. Uh, also done some work with Paradox and White Wolf um, in the past, and uh, recently I've also self-published a Vampire the Masquerade Edition supplement on the Storyteller Vault. Uh, I also run the horror panel at PAX Australia every year, so if you're ever in town, come hang out. <laughs> if you just happen to be in Australia, yeah. Yeah. Um, my name is Knox Weiler-Burf, and I am the creative director at Hunters Entertainment. I'm also the game master for an Outbreak Undead series that has spanned a couple of different channels, but we're most, uh, most uh, currently going to be premiering a new series on Pixel Circus starting in September. We're very excited about that, and I'll talk more about it later, I'm sure. But um, if you have any questions specifically, you can find me afterwards about that. So. Uh, hello, my name is uh, Calvin Khalil. I uh, write for uh, Vampire the Masquerade, uh, Vampire the Requiem, and uh, Overlight Dungeons and Dragons. You can find me on the uh, Storytellers Vault. I have uh, put out a book about the Sabbat there called The Black Hand. Uh, and um, my most recent work for Renegade is uh, Vampire Player's Guide, Second Inquisition, and uh, Sabbat the Black Hand for them as well. Uh, and uh, yeah, that's me. Fantastic. Thank you all for joining us today. Uh, as I hope you all know, this is the Horror and Gaming panel. Uh, so we're going to start with uh, some consent and uh, safety in horror games tools. Uh, panelists, does anybody have anything special they would like to talk about for uh, safety in horror games that makes it uh, different from just your standard dungeon crawl fantasy type game? I mean, I don't, I don't, I'm not shy, so I'm going to just start talking. Um, this is probably the most important topic that we can impart upon you in this panel, is about understanding the players at your table. It's not that you can't do something, because your tables and your imaginations belong to all of you and the group that you're with. It is about understanding the people at your table and fully understanding what their lines and veils are. Now, there are a couple different tools to do this, and I'm going to let everybody up here you know, elaborate on some of them. But uh, I've already said it once, lines and veils is probably one of the most useful tools that I have ever used in a game system. And what it does is it, it, it defines what a strict line is. What line do you not cross? So if, for instance, death of animals is off of your list and we're gaming together, and I know that because of a trauma that you've had in your past that you don't want to explore anything to do with a dog that died by getting hit by a car, then I know that that's a line. I can't really go past that line and I don't want to go past that line because that infringes upon the trust that we built at the table. Um, good horror tables are a lot like intimate partners in, in the way that you have made a, 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 an arrangement together to, to explore these things and it is very 
very sacred, that you do not step past that, and that you understand what those moments are, where those lines, where the, where the no lies, and never ever cross that. Because that trust is what allows you to be in a scary moment, to create tension, to create horror, without knowing where your boundaries are, you can't really effectively do that. A veil is a kind of a, a, a warning. It's a yield sign. You know that, okay, the dog situation, we can explore it, but you know, just so you know, I had this occurrence when I was a kid. I, I watched my dog die, so I, I don't really feel comfortable exploring that too much. But if you're gonna do it, let me know, and then if I have a problem, I'll check in with you. So a veil is kind of an, an, an alert to your game master so that they know exactly kind of where they need to be cautious. Yeah, uh, there's a number of different safety tools that you can use, uh, utilize. Line veils is a great one. Uh, one that tends to be uh, easier, like in the moment that I've used before, is just, it's the, it's the stoplight, where it's like red, no, we need stop, this is not good. Yellow, proceed cautiously, let's do a blackout on what's going on, or green, I'm good for go. And that's something that you can utilize, um, you know, in the moment if it's like, oh, and then the, the spiders erupted from the eyes, I'm like, nope, red, that's, that's a red for me. Uh, one, spiders, two, eyes coming, <laughs> and then um, brain spiders, I can't go there. So that's, that's me personally. So, um, but yeah, why this is, one of the most important things that you can do. Uh, I've, I've been a part of horror in some way, shape, or form since I was eight. It was like the bonding thing for me and my dad. Um, Freddy Krueger was like, was my first. <laughs> and why it's so important to establish this baseline with, uh, with your people is because then you know that they will feel comfortable with you to explore other things. If I'm no to brain spiders and eyeballs, I might be yes to, um, you know, decapi uh, decapitation and then the head turns into an alien that then eats somebody. But I don't know that because I'm too worried about like, oh, what if, what if he steps on my spider thing? What if he has an eyeball thing? So when you establish that trust, then you're able to like go off to the races and you get the thing and you get <laughs> the thing prequel. Uh, you, you get all of that if you just, set that baseline and, and inspire confidence in your players. So um, one of the things that I use is the X card um, and it's very similar to like red light, green light. It, it's a full stop though. Um, and so basically anybody at any point can just either go like this if we're like, I, we do actual plays and stuff like that. Or um, I usually have a card with an X on it and they can just touch it. I, as a game master, know that's something that is bothering them. We move on to the next scene. Um, and we can either take black or I can just narrate what goes on and happens. Um, yeah, one of mine is like harm against children, but that's because I'm a teacher. <laughs> and, and if any of my parents see any of my actual plays, uh, that's not something I want them to be watching happen. So like, it does not have to actually be something for personal trauma. It could be something where your job prevents you from doing stuff or makes you uncomfortable to be doing that in that moment. Uh, I mean, everyone's repeating everything that I, I do already. I think lines and veils are the most important thing probably for if you're doing like a long-term home game. 
Uh, one of the things you'll see, you know, cons like this one, there's a lot of pickup games and demos. You don't always have the time to go through everyone's lines and veils, but the X card's pretty good. Um, there is, and I, forgive me if I'm getting the publisher wrong, but there's a fantastic sheet called the Consent and Gaming Checklist. I think, I believe yeah. it was Monte Cook yep, that put is. that out. Uh, if you're about to embark in like, you know, a regular gaming group or a, or a, or a campaign, I fully encourage you to use that sheet. And if you can find it online, just Google Consent and Gaming Checklist. It's but free. The other thing that I do like about it as well is that actually you can sort of just give it to your players and say, hey, fill this out and you can give it back to you and you can keep it anonymous. So no one necessarily, you know, if someone has something that they, for whatever reason, don't necessarily want to talk about, but it's also important. They can just clean it on there and you don't need to know who it is. You just know, okay, this topic is not okay. The other cool thing about it is that it allows people to enthusiastically consent to other mm -hmm. things, just like, you know, you know, you were saying before, you know, so you very clear, like, well, you use it as a tool. It's like, wow, everyone is really into bugs for some reason. I'm yeah. going to put some bugs in my, <laughs> in my, my bugs. Be, yeah, put, put, put bugs in them. Um, and apart from that, yeah, I, I did use the lines and veils thing in my personal life recently because I had to do a best man speech for my friend. So uh, I had dinner with him and his him and his, his fiance, and I said, hey, can I do your lines and veils for what I can make jokes about in this best man speech? So it's pretty fun. So a very handy tool. It's such a good point that you know people get uncomfortable sometimes and you don't want to call anybody out. Yeah. And you don't want to like make a big deal out of it. You don't want to be at a table. And even an X card, while it's great, uh, mm. sometimes people are nervous about touching the X card because they don't want everybody else to know that they have a problem with yeah. something. Yeah. Or they don't realize it. Yeah. Like yeah. They're, they're sitting there and they're getting more and more attention filled and they don't understand why and they take mm. themselves out of the game. You know, it's, it's a thing when you figure out what an X card thing is for you. Yes, uh, and that's happened to us in our game, actually. It's something free. We were playing a game of Outbreak Undead, and um, you know, she didn't know that she had an issue with uh, the severing of a limb. But I started describing this moment, and uh, she, she found that she had a, a touchstone there. And we had to adjust and make some corrections to how things played out. But we all had that trust built up ahead of time. That's when, because everybody's going to fail. You're gonna make a mistake, you're gonna overstep a boundary accidentally. The, the, the thing is, is to know how to correct it and to never repeat it. Your understanding and your mentality makes this an acceptable uh, situation. It's not about, it's about owning up to your mistakes and fixing them, right? And knowing that you can you can improve as a game master, and or as a player, by the way, this isn't just for game masters, but to understand that, that you might uh, overstep something and just have to correct. Yeah, I, I guess the only thing I would add is, um... Like, right, knowing your table is exceptionally important and that lets you explore, you know, what your table wishes to explore and you can actually get into the horrible stuff because you know where the, the trip lines and landmines are. Um, and that's why I'd say like, a, you know, session zero is very important where you basically lay down the ground rules. And at conventions, obviously, you know, if you ever run a game at a convention or, you know, in that kind of situation where you have a bunch of strangers all of a sudden and you have to uh, run a horror game for them, uh, just doing a quick checklist uh, of you know, what's going on in that game and what people are comfortable with, even that kind of mini session zero um, helps a lot. Uh, and not just in playing, um, but in writing as well. Like if you do any writing uh, for games or wish to write games, then uh, I would say be mindful of what you're writing. If you can just, as you write, make a little checklist of what is happening or occurring in the game that might be a trigger for someone or a content warning, uh, and, and th that'll pay dividends once you're finished. Because trust me, when you're done writing something, the last thing you want to do is read it again. Oh. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, so just being able to you know, do a quick content warning right in the front for someone, whether you're running a game or writing a game, um, is, is huge. 
Uh, and yeah, some people don't realize what their lines and veils are. Very often, the people I find who have the strongest lines are the ones who've never given it any thought before. They'll often come to the table and be like, oh, no, no, everything's fine, everything's mm -hmm. fine. And then you start, you know, going through the checklist and suddenly they're like, wait, 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 no, no. <laughs> so while we're on the subject of, how, of things to avoid, uh, let's go over what horror is not. So there's some very cheap and easy things that horror movies and horror games can do that we probably want to avoid in an actual horror game. Can we, can we talk about some of those things? Well, um, low-hanging low fruit is the isms, you know, um, horror is not for a vehicle for you to further um, racist, sexist, uh, phobic tropes. It's, it's not that. It don't, don't make this wonderful, beautiful, complexioned character uh, and then have them be the first one that dies. You know, uh, no need for that. No need to kill off the, all the women in your game or to target um, people that are not of let's say a main demographic and gender, you know, or, or a final girl kind of a thing. It's, it's, this is your opportunity to be able to do more. Once you've established that trust and that confidence um, with your players, you can push the envelope on other things. You can have a very diverse horror filled world where it's like, and actually it works out really well because then you don't know who's gonna die next. It's like the story then unfolds in a way. And, and in particular, it's a good way to check yourself to be like, oh, where is my knee-jerk reaction with this? You know, who, who is it that I'm, I'm targeting and not even realizing that I am? What have I been taught? How can I unlearn that? So good. Um, yeah, I mean, exactly. I mean, and, and uh, as far as like, I guess the, you're right, the cheap thrills, you know, the, you know, the jump scares of gaming in a sense. Um, like, you Right, like lines and veils should also shouldn't be a checklist for pushing buttons. Like just because you know what sets someone's off, and maybe they even say, uh, you know, they're okay with that, um, going to that well just for you know kind of the easy thrill is um, is not not something to do. Uh, and I would say that um, you know your games say something about you and what you're trying to say to the world. Like even if you're not intending to say something to the world with your games, especially you know as a writer or a creator, let alone as you know a storyteller running a game, like your game says something. So if you are putting things in your game where you're right, where you're targeting a specific group of people, uh, or kind of just crossing red lines just because you feel like it, like that's saying something even if that's not your intent. Um, so you know, think of your games on some level or are not just um, a conversation with your table, but you know, statement you're making. I'm going to say something broad and then I'm going to say something specific. Uh, I don't think that horror gaming is you versus your players. I think that it's you, even more so than in other role-playing games, you have to think about your role if you're running the game. And also, I think good players do this too, because uh, you know, good players are in their own way good GMs. But if you're a GM and you're running your players through a game, I think that it's really important that you think about yourself as a guide. Someone who is showing them through doorways, through hallways, and moving them along and having their safety at the forefront of your mind. Not just that you're trying to scare them and get them. You know, you're not trying to attack your players. Very much what you were saying. Uh, the other thing I'm gonna say, and this is more uh, specific for me, kind of how I run games. You know, horror is not just describing gore. Horror is a mental state, and it's understanding fear. It's understanding the darkness that lies in all human beings 
and how we can tap into it through shared storytelling. It's about building tension, about understanding pacing, and about knowing exactly when you're gonna be able to create the scariest moment for your players and building up to it and then quickly retreating from it so that your players can absorb it. Because if you're just describing gore all the time, you're doing an action movie. Mm. It's not really a horror game at that point. Yeah. Not that there's anything wrong with that. No, 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 no. Yeah, I think um, for me, horror is, is at its best is when it's used as a vehicle to, you know, uh, arguably Trojan horse in some real things. Like, no matter what kind of story you're telling, uh, you're a human being, so you're talking about the human condition in whatever way. So figuring out the kind of story that you want to tell and whatever system you're using with uh, the characters that you know you have and the players that you know you have, and then essentially laying a horror veil on top of that and using horror as a vehicle to explore that, I think is probably the best way to go about it. And you know that 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 then feeds into how you build tension when the horror moments are, as opposed to being like we're going to do a horror story, so there needs to be a lot of severed limbs or or whatever like that. You know, it's, mm -hmm. you'll have a much more rewarding experience if you really explore the, the type of thing that you want to tell and how horror is going to enhance that storytelling. And I, I feel like um, horror, uh, specifically for me, is is very much a headspace and where I get immersed into it. And at, those are the that that's that moment where you are very vulnerable to a lot of things. And that's what makes horror so wonderful is that you can explore that vulnerability in a space that you know is going to be safe for you and safe for the people at the table. And um, I feel like the things that horror is not are the things that take me out of that vulnerability and that headspace. When I lose that is when, when horror goes away and it's no longer horror at that point. Um, uh, it could be suspense or anything like that. It could be a whole, a whole bunch of other things, but it's not horror. Um, so trying to learn on top of all of this other stuff, trying to learn that vulnerability and how to um, coax that along throughout the story so that everyone stays in those points at the points that they need to be. Um, one thing horror is not, just like thought about it, is it's not only just uh, <laughs> happens in America or in Western society. Yeah. Horror is, I've, oh, some of the best horror I've ever seen uh, has been out of Korea, mm -hmm. for instance, oh, yeah. um, oh, or China. Wow. So, right? Yeah, incredible work is being done, has always been done, you know, with there. So it's like when you're, when you're thinking about your next horror campaign or, or whatnot, it doesn't necessarily have to be uh, Bill and Jane in Main Street, USA. I mean, if it's easier for you to set it there, great. But if you've been watching Korean movies or you've been watching a, a Indian horrors, oh my God, it's next level, then, then go ahead and, and explore setting that. Yes, it stretches you, but it also, that's good <laughs> to, to stretch yourself. Um, you will make mistakes, obviously, but um, we're all here to like learn. And one of the best ways that I found to get into another culture is through their food. So if you're gonna set a horror campaign somewhere else other than Main Street USA, but you're not familiar with it, uh, start looking around your neighborhood, go, go to that small spot that's, if you want an Ethiopian horror, go to an Ethiopian place and start talking to them, start exploring that. I mean, horror is not just where you grew up. So now that we've covered what horror isn't, um, 
we're going to go ahead and cover what horror should be in your games. Um, what are the themes and mood that you should strive for? How do you maintain those in a single session and if you're playing a longer form across a campaign? Uh, well, I think that there are a lot of answers to that. Mm -hmm. And I think it's a very hard thing to narrow down. I can, again, only speak from my personal experience. I think horror is really, when it all boils down, when you're talking about different themes and, and topics, the unknown and the darkness of complete, utter nothingness. And knowing how we relate with that as human beings, because we all do. And I think that tapping into kind of our intrinsic, inherited view what this life means to us and what happens to us, that you can start to unravel all sorts of layers of what fear really is and what horror is. And it comes in every shape and size, but it all, in my mind, leads back to the unknown. For a way to maintain mood, uh, whether it's like a one session or a multi-session, I, I feel that having other cues that the body can um, dial into, kind of like a muscle memory. And by that, I mean, you might have a certain soundtrack that you do to um, you know, inspire tension, to get into the headspace of we are in this moment together. Uh, you can also do that with food. There can be a particular food or layout that you have that's like, okay, we're, uh, we're in the a decadent hall and you know oh you know you you don't even know how you wound up here but here's all this great food you could have food is like oh because they're actually like in the scene they're tasting the scene and then and then the horror moment happens of whatever so um there's that so sound it, it, just the the sensory memory in general that you can do and that will set the tone for yourself for either that one or for the campaign that you have And I, I do feel like um, a lot of times there, there are like tropes for certain themes that people try to shy away from, but taking those tropes and presenting them in ways that are not necessarily perceptible at first is a good way to kind of use them without actually putting it out in the open. So if you're doing Eldritch Horror, what are some of the tropes that you can find there? And then how can you present those in your campaign or in your story in different ways? Um, where it's not necessarily upfront for the players at first until they start uncovering more and more and then all of a sudden it starts being very obvious and, and now they're in way too deep to be able to back out. Revelation is so important. Mm -hmm. So while we're on that subject, um, how do you, what's the best way to pace your scenes? So to maintain a level of horror or to ratchet it up or to ratchet it down as needed? It probably depends on the type of uh, horror experience that you want. So like for me and most of the people I play with, I'm a big fan of um, uh, like a slow burn, like a real low, like slow, low, Low boil, low boil. Slow burn. Slow burn. What am I saying? Yeah. Low boil. Slow boil. Low boil. Low boil. Slow boil. Everybody hashtag low boil. Yeah. So you talk about like, you know, Hitchcock used to talk about the difference between surprise versus suspense. So like surprise is when 
something happens that no one knew was happening, but suspense is when you know something's going to happen and everyone knows it's going to happen, but we don't know when it's going to happen and it's really tangible, like, you know, like, like blackstrap molasses, just really pulling it out for as long as possible. And um, that's, that's generally what I like to do in my games is to try and I, I like to keep things as normal as possible before entry and just sort of hinting at horror things until you get to sort of this thing at the end where you know things are going to happen. Happen. But that's generally, you know, I, I run a lot of Call of Cthulhu, I run Vampire and stuff like that. That's how I run those games. Um, if you're running something like Outbreak on Dead, that may be different, right? Like, Depends on how you run it. Exactly, yeah. right? You know, so um, it, it, you really have to ask yourself first, you know, what 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 is the type of horror and what is the experience I want? And that again comes back right to the most important topic which we covered at the start is understanding your players and what their expectations are and what they what they desire. Um, yeah, I mean, exactly. It depends on the type of game. I, I guess the Games I mostly run are in the um, personal horror genre. I, I don't I don't necessarily run a, a lot of games uh, like that, um, particularly. But as far as the personal horror genre is concerned, I guess the main thing is uh, what are your players willing to do? Like, what are you know their characters' um, lines that they're willing to cross? And if you can bring them to those situations and scenarios where they have to make um, decisions uh, in character. Um, that they originally did not conceive that this character, you know, um, who would be doing, uh, and that's uh, you know especially in you know uh, Outbreak Undead or you know even Vampire, um, where you're putting them in situations where they have to grapple with something um, that possibly as you know a human, a mortal, somebody not in a post-apocalyptic world, uh, didn't believe that they would ever do, um, and how exactly they would go about that. Pacing is, is so crucial to horror, and I think it's kind of why we're talking about it right now. Uh, for me, one of the things that I do is what I, I call breadcrumbs. You, 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 the best thing that you can do to run a, a good horror game is to uh, outline everything that you think might happen, but not to try to encapsulate everything. Because it depends on how you run games, but I, I always feel that freedom of uh, choice between the, what the players want to do and, and not allowing yourself to fall into the trap of forcing them down a, a single pathway. Because it's, it's easy to do that because you're like, oh, okay, well the horror jump has to happen here and, and, and I'm playing this out so this has to happen. It's better to allow your players to define that but to know what the breadcrumbs are. And by that I mean, what are your keystone moments in horror that are gonna slowly build up? And like you were saying, again, it's a build up. You know, you gotta think of arcs. It's actually so much harder to run a game in the horror genre than it is for uh, a fantasy genre or something like that. Well, these same story things are, are universal and they work no matter how you do it. If you choose to run horror games, you're kind of accepting a very, very difficult task in that it is crucial that the pacing and the arc of what you're trying to do fits the theme and the mood and what your players are looking for so that you can build the correct amount of tone and tension in the right timing. You know, it's, it's very hard to do. but. The best thing that you can do, plan it out, do it as much as you can. Think about your players. Again, this comes back to knowing your players. You know, write out what you think they may do. Like I know Marquia is going as a player, going to do this thing maybe or this thing, and because I'm building the story around these players anyway, around their characters, and so the idea of how we sculpt that moment and know that maybe that's going to happen, but they also may go all the way over here. So how do we plan for what those options might be without specifically building barriers to ourselves? One of my favorite things to do is outline and then forget the outline. <laughs> I, I believe I've torpedoed many a moment for him yeah. where he thought that I was going to do a thing and then I, I ended up uh, shooting his prophet instead of saving my friends. 
So yeah, the, I mean, your players are going to are going to do that for you. Uh, for pacing, I think uh, setting world tone because all of these worlds exist in different. I mean, if you're going to do an outbreak undead like um, uh, Khaldun, Khaldun, yes, like Khaldun was saying, uh, that's that's different. You're post-apocalyptic. That's the world that you're in. Unless you are starting at uh, day zero with um, Outbreak Undead with it. And it's like, that's going to be completely different than, say, Hunter the Reckoning. Where it's like, you're, you're starting off, you're completely normal. Your world tone is normal every day here. And then that supernatural moment happens and it changes everything in the rest of your life. So setting that world tone, I feel like the pacing then... Once the the it moment happens, why is why is today's campaign, today's game, why is it that day? Why is it the day? I think that that once you have that solidified in, that your pacing then naturally comes out of that. Yeah, I also feel like you um, you have to go in waves with your with your moments too like you have to have some winding down of the tension because otherwise if you're always tension all the time it's like you're a cat that's stuck in that moment where they're just hopping around with the back back arched all the time <laughs> okay and and um while that, that's that's great for like that feeling of of horror and suspense and tension there's never any break on that, and that can actually be extremely draining for players as well as the GM for having to keep that tension. So knowing when to have some sort of moment where there is either some sort of uh, reveal or some, some other thing that happens that now the players have to make the decision to continue with what they're doing or go and inspect that or and to wind that down so that you can build it back up again. It's all about trying to figure out how that pacing for winding down, building up, winding down, building up goes with your games and over a long session or over a, a whole campaign where those points are going to be because they're going to change depending on what your players decide to do. So how can horror help us make sense of the real world and our personal issues and perspectives? Can it be used for anything more than just fun scares? <laughs> yes. Okay, yes. great. Yes. <laughs> yes. It's a loaded question. Um, it was. So, um, they're not here, but um, there is a, a group that uses gaming for therapy um, specifically for that it's the Bodana group. If you are interested in any of that or in any information, you can go to their site and look it up. They are fantastic um, individuals, uh, but your personal game um, should not be used for therapy. <laughs> um, and that is and that is for a whole mess of reasons. Even if everyone consents at the table, the GM running it is not a therapist. And your friend should not be your therapist. Um, whether they are or not, you know, if that's your day, their day job, your friend should not be your therapist. Um, so there, there are definitely ways for you to be able to explore in a safe way without having to put all of that on everyone else at the table and the GM and all of that stuff. 
So there, there are definitely things that you can do, such as if you have a phobia, for instance, the spiders thing. Mm -hmm. I have been working for years to try and get over my phobia of spiders. Um, and so, like, them showing up in RPGs no longer bothers me, but that's because I've talked with the GM about it. Whenever that comes up, I always make sure that the table knows that my reaction, personal reaction versus my character reactions are going to be different because I'm working through that. Um, but that's something that like I've talked with people about and it's not something that's debilitating. Um, so yeah, like, so there, so there are different way, things for you to be able to do for that, to explore things in a consensual way and that's safe too, so. Catharsis is real. Like, yeah. yes. there's, a, there's a reason to do things to try to expose yourself to something, to kind of uh, release something. Uh, my answer to 2020 was to run us through a year of Outbreak Undead. You know? And That's legit. Yeah. Like, yeah. I, you know, and, and it can be very curative and healing, but it, it, you're not a doctor. Nobody, I mean, maybe you are a doctor, but even then, in that moment, you're not a doctor. And so you're there to entertain mm -hmm. and to engage in, in, in an imaginary world that you're sharing with your friends. That's the, the purpose. It's not to cure you of anything, really. Yeah, Except yeah. maybe the, the, the hatred of 2020. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, uh, and speaking, boredom. Yeah, boredom. Oh, those walls got so close <laughs> in. Um, yeah, I mean, oh, let's talk about the elephant in the room. Why we're all wearing masks right now, yeah. you know, and trying our best to be safe in uh, distance. Um, for so much of making sense of the real world, I will say, like during 2020, 2021, I liked watching movies like Contagion yeah. because that world made a lot of sense. They found the cure and they saved everybody in the end. So like that um, outbreak, it was cathartic for me to see that even if it was a fictional, even if it was a movie that I had seen so many times and I already knew all the beats of it, it helped me. So with this, with uh, making sense of the real world, like I, uh, even our Outbreak Undead campaign, which, you know, talks about virus, you know, you, you can get infected with a, with a virus in it. It was cathartic because it was my character doing their best in the circumstances that they had. It wasn't me personally, and I wasn't projecting all of myself into the character, but enough of me was in that character to where it helped real me. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and in, in that sense, my character, um, Achira, since I, I did, um, I did a, a quarantine alone, like I lived alone. So it's like my connection was through the computer screen, through Zoom. So with my character, um, I, I utilize my need to be near people through my character. So she made, some very unwise decisions to stick with people that have betrayed her, but it was it was what I needed. It wasn't, I wasn't doing it for therapy. I was also in therapy at the time, so just so y'all know. But it's it's like, it helped me make sense of the real world in that sense. I found a lot of solace to have this character that was fighting zombies or running from them in this fictional world. You just helped me realize why it was I sat there crying for every episode of Station Eleven last year as well. So oh, <laughs> like, I was like, "What's going on?" I was like, yeah, that's right. "Now I know." Right? That makes more sense. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah I mean, right? It's interesting to ask. Um, you know what? What is horror for? I mean, simpler 
as what it's game, what our game's for. Um, but for, for horror, I think a lot of it is being able to, you know, talk about things that, you know, maybe people don't think you should talk about. Or, you know, in a game to touch things you shouldn't touch. Um, a lot of times, uh, and I play a lot of games where, you know, you portray the monster, in a sense. Uh, you know, vampire, werewolf, and all that. But a lot of times the monster themselves, even if you're not the one portraying it, if it's something you're opposing, uh, is a stand-in for a real-world problem. Uh, like when you watch a zombie movie, uh, you know, if you replace those zombies with something else, you know, things from the past coming to consume the future and the present. I mean, I think we can all, you know, see where that comes from. Whether that's an allegory for, you know, the environment or, you know, you know the uncaring people who, you know, let the world kind of burn and now you have to live in this, you know, shit show. Uh, you know, th those are the zombies in a sense. Uh, or they could stand in for the plague, which, you know, we all have to live through. And, you know, this pandemic has probably changed my future zombie games more than <laughs> anything else. Like, from now on, I'm like, oh, I didn't realize people would just rush out in the street and be like, fight me! Come on! Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> wow! Uh, good. It's fake. Right. I didn't realize, but now I know that, you know, that's going to be in my game going forward. Like, you know, it would be, people would think, would not buy my game, you know, the authenticity of my game if there weren't such people in it. Because they've lived through that experience of, of the bite me crowd. Um, in, in, in all contexts of that. Um, so, you know, what the monster represents, even if you are playing the monster, is, um, you know, an important part of horror. And it's not a question you have to answer before you write or play the game. Most often that question is answered you know, at the table, like what what the monster is. Hashtag fight me crowd. Right. <laughs> so at what point does a game become a horror game? There, there are games that are marketed as, this is a horror game, this is a monster game, this is Call of Cthulhu. But at what point in any game does it just become a horror game? This uh, comes up a lot in the, the, the panel that I do at PAX that I mentioned in Australia. Please write it down, come along. But the, uh, <laughs> is, is defining when is a game actually a horror game. Uh, and just to divert from tabletop for a second, we talked about a game called uh, Hellblade, Center with Sacrifice, if anyone's played that. There was a lot of contention, is that game actually a horror game or not? And what it came down to was, uh, what the, 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 the very chill description and, and, and uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, definition of what makes something a horror game is the creator's intention, is the creator's intention to uh, instoke in, in fear and dread into the player. And that's a very basic, nice thing to help you personally understand. But, you know, um, I also played Twilight 2000, you know, the, the game, the World War III. And it took me like half a section, half a session of running before I was like, oh, this is a horror game. Uh, at least the way we were playing it in terms of, you know, it was very much like what are these, you know, soldiers trying to get out of Poland willing to do? You know, it's the same thing yeah. you're talking about, you know, the post-apocalyptic thing. How do people face their personal horror things? Um, so it, it really, yeah, uh, that really messed with my little definition thing because I don't think the, the lovely folks at Free League were expecting you know, people to make this a, a horror game and me have to <laughs> get out the consent checklist for this session too, you know. Um, I, I think that, you know, a horror game is emotional and mental. I think that, you know, yeah, you, you can argue this, of course, but there, there are ways that like, you have a physical thing. Like if you're playing Outbreak Undead and you're just slaughtering zombies left and right, not thinking about the context of what you're doing or what's happening, I, I'd say that that's an action game. You know, as soon as it becomes emotional and mental and becomes more of an internal 
struggle in a fight, I think that's when horror occurs. The other difficulty you have, which is one of the reasons horror is a genre and the various properties that come out of horror are so polarizing in some cases is because the same things don't scare everybody. Mm, so yeah. like saying like zombies or whatever, like they just, I don't, they just don't do anything for me. Like same thing. Me, yeah, I'm, I'm a bite me guy, you know. <laughs> um, or if it's, a, if it's a slasher game, if it's just like, if I know in the context of a game, it's just like a dude with an axe. I'm like, okay, cool, but I'm not scared. If it's like a ghost with an axe, I'm like, holy shit. Like, what am I going to do? <laughs> that's just, you know, that's, that's the just common sense. Yeah, yeah, exactly right. Yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah, that, that's another thing to consider is, you know, even something like something, maybe a horror game, it may not have the desired effect on everybody, depending on how you run it, I suppose. Warhammer 40k is a very good example of that. Yes. <laughs> um, I, I think, yeah, like horror is definitely the creator's intention, but also the emotion that the players have. Like when I first played Vampire the Masquerade, my very first RPG, and let me tell you that there were some sessions where there was no horror going on because we were in high school. <laughs> like, <laughs> Um, and, and it very much turned into, you know, I pet the kitty and what happens, you know, like stuff like that. So, um, yeah, it, it very much is the creator's intention, but also how you carry that within your game. And you can take games that aren't essentially horror and turn them into horror by flipping a couple of things around doesn't it it, it it doesn't work so well for some settings but you can do it but uh the creator's intention is definitely going to drive like how you flip it because like you can't you know throw cryptids into something where the that would not make any sense for the type of horror or you know zombies into something um, unless you're trying to do like Pride and Prejudice horror with zombies, <laughs> um, in which case then you can make a million dollars in a movie. Um, <laughs> uh, so you, you have to kind of match the horror with the setting that you're in if you're trying to flip it into something that it's not. So that's also like taking the intention of the creator and amplifying it mm -hmm. in certain ways. Um, well, I, I have to go because I have a long walk, but uh, I guess I'll, to add on to that, and this is my last, um, uh, point uh, here is um, I guess for horror like usually and, and yeah it's different for each table and you can bring horror elements into things that aren't you know usually a horror game like there's some very like episode, at least one really great My Little Pony episode which has a <laughs> friendship is magic which has horror elements actually it's really yeah. that's a very oh, well yeah. Yeah. So I won't compare myself to that level <laughs> uh, no honestly uh, but I'd say the main thing is uh, for horror games uh, the stakes are usually different than other games uh, your buy-in that, that's asked of you as a player is often different. Like you're basically asked to, in some sense, put your ego down to, you know, you are not any more important than any other character. Like you could be next. Like if, if you know, if you could be next for real, then chances are it's a horror game. Um, in most, in most games, if, you know, the idea that, you know, you could be the person with the ax in their head in the next room is just unthinkable, then it's probably not a horror game. But you know, you don't know. I mean, you know, if you get back up, it could be a horror game. Um, so right, in some sense, the plot armor for your character isn't really there in a horror game. And if you can internalize that uh, as a player, even if your character might still have that attitude and be, you know, a bite me guy, um, then the game can be, is, is probably a horror game. But uh, those are kind of broad 
tropes, but I, I think they, they work as a good rule of thumb. I, and I'm sorry I have to go every month. But. We missed you. So while we're on the topic of plot armor, um, what are some good mechanics in horror games that uh, help enhance the themes? So now you're going and can't talk about hunger dice. <laughs> no, but you can talk about it. I mean, hunger dice are yeah, that's a fantastic mechanic. Yeah. Anything that that helps to create suspense, um, and that anxiety within, like, like I get it right here where I'm like, oh my god, what's gonna happen? Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, like, could, is you, this... could you explain what hunger dice are for yes. people who might not know? Oh, <laughs> yes, so I apologize. Um, so hunger dice is a mechanic within 5th um, edition vampire, where as you are using your vampiric powers and arousing your blood, you have higher and higher chances of your beast, which is your inner monster, taking over. Um, and so the dice act as both dice for your rolls, but also as antagonists in your rolls as well. So if you roll horribly on those specific dice, the hunger dice, bad things can happen. Um, you could also roll excellent, in which case some good things will happen in a way that you probably weren't expecting. <laughs> My favorite example being if you're, you're picking a lock and you get a messy critical means you, you pick the lock, but you probably like broke the door down. Oh yeah, you, you just <laughs> kind of crunched the yeah, door. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Hunter the Reckoning has a desperation yeah, dice. Same, yeah. That's yep. basically the same concept, but you obviously don't get hungry. Yeah. <laughs> with it. Yeah. yeah. Um, you get more and more desperate and um, bad things happen when humans get desperate. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Uh, anything that uh, is a finite resource. You know, I, I yes. think that it's if you if you know as a you can create something for your players that's a mechanical uh, resource that they only have so much of and they know that that's dwindling that builds that tension as yep. well. Outbreak Undead has a great mechanic that I love. You know, again, I'm the creative director for that, so you can take that as you want. <laughs> you uh, in in Outbreak we have what's called risk, and that's a, a, a resource for the GM. As the players do things, like if you're firing guns, you're building risk. So the GM is being given fuel to use against you at a later date. And you know as a player, something might be really risky. Like, oh, I can shoot this zombie in the head and survive really easily, but if I do, the zombies in the other room are gonna hear it because of the risk that I give to the GM, and, and I'm gonna pay for that. So anything that's gonna build that tension that way and gives you kind of a leverage to, uh, to tone, you know? I love, uh, and <laughs> stay with me on this, um, I, I love to give my players uh, something cute and fluffy that has plot armor, like let's say a corgi, uh, and then watch them sacrifice themselves <laughs> over this corgi. That is evil and maniacal. So, <laughs> give them a mascot and then send the mascot into danger. So do you, do you not tell the players? That oh, they don't armor? know that corgi has plot armor. They have no idea. And to be fair, to build on that, you don't have to make it a corgi. You can make it a beloved NPC or yeah. some, something that they connect to emotionally yeah. Yeah. And, and then take it away. <laughs> oh, I love that. Right. Yeah. Um, one of the, the RPGs that I really enjoy has the mechanic for chill, um, where if you forget something, like if you, if you don't have a flashlight listed on your character sheet, you can flip over a token and you find a flashlight in your pack or whatever the case may be. But 
as you flip over the token, that gives the GM stuff that they can do with their monster. Mm. And so you build up and you only have, a, it's a finite resource. And you can use it for things like re-rolling or adding dice and stuff like that too. So it's a mechanic built into the system. And it definitely gives that, oh my god, the GM now has all of the tokens and we have nothing. Is that 2d20 game? It is, no, d10. It's a d10 game. Is it chilly then? Chill, yeah. Chill, yeah. With uh, Cold Cthulhu. uh, Black Hat. Oh, sorry. Sorry. No, you're okay. Um, With Cold Cthulhu, a lot of people automatically think about the sanity mechanic, Mm -hmm. which is really about Mm -hmm. your... Um, it's probably not the best word for it because it's more about your on your character's ability to comprehend the incomprehensible and before they just you know their soul breaks in half or whatever. Um, but the the actual mechanics that make that more of a horror game are the the luck mechanic and the push push your roll mechanic. So in, for those of you who aren't familiar, Call of Cthulhu is it's a D100 roll low system. Uh, if, you, if you fail your roll, the GM uh, we call them a keeper. Uh, can up, you can say so you can roll again, but if you do, here's a bad thing that's going to happen. So you're putting that back in the, the and that creates that whole suspense versus surprise thing we were talking about before. So it's in, now it's up to the player if they want to make the roll and see if mm-hmm. that happens, or, or just keep their current consequences of failure. You know, they've often got to weigh that. And the other thing you can do is you, each character has a, a luck, which is a finite pool of points they can spend on a one for one basis to lower their roll. So yeah, you can spend 20 points to get that 70 down to a 50 and pass your you know spot hidden check. Uh, but then you've only got 30 luck for the rest of the game. And when you're making it, you might have to make a luck roll at some point, try to roll under your luck. And then, so again, putting those, uh, those tools of like tension and stress in the hands of the player um, helps them sort of control their experience then as well. Yeah, I, I think a surprise flat rolls are a really good thing to use where it's just like, Oh, oh, so you choose to go in that room. Great, great, great. Yeah. I need for you to roll a D6. Yeah. No pluses. No, don't right. worry about <laughs> it. Yeah. Roll, roll a D6 and tell me what number you have. They're like, oh, that number. Okay. Right. Then you do the old. <laughs> Moving forward. <laughs> Jason, Carl, let me just make a note. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> right. uh, one of my favorite things to do is to negotiate with the players. So let them build their own grave. You know? yeah. <laughs> it's like, okay, so you don't have any luck points left. Sorry to hear that. I, I could give you five, but I'm going to need you to give something else up. <laughs> and fi- find the, the thing. corgi. Yeah, you can say that intonation. Yeah. It's really <laughs> intonation is everything. Yeah. That's a really good Kill the corgi. Hashtag. Yeah. <laughs> corgi, corgi, corgi has bottom. Right? Corgi has one. So we've reached the end of my questions. Um, does anybody in the audience have any questions? All right, I saw your hand up first, sir. Go ahead. So I, I have two. The, the shorter one first, uh, do the players always win in uh, a horror game? So the question is, do the players always win in a horror game? They showed up to play, didn't they? Yeah. Therefore, they won. They're winning. <laughs> yeah. Do the characters win? win? Yeah. yeah. It's a different story. So no. can you have an ending where everyone dies? Have you like, played Cold yes, Cthulhu before? So I'm running the Master Normal Hotel. You are. Yeah. About halfway through it. Yeah. And, and one of my players like, well, the players always win. And I'm like, do they? I don't know. <laughs> like, if you end that campaign with any character who started that campaign, yeah. you've done it wrong. So. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, it goes back to rule one. Like, you have to know your players. If yep. they're expecting that, then that's what should happen. But, but make them work for it. Yeah. You know? Make, it, make them really doubt that that's going to happen. Otherwise, you don't have four. Yeah, don't, you know? don't let them know that you're not going to kill them. Yeah, just, yeah. I'm in this game, I'm going to make 
curve here. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> you ignore us. Yeah. He's ahead of the curve. Yeah. <laughs> the second question, when, and this is maybe a bit of a spoiler, uh, so they meet Norlahotep in this game. Spoiler alert. I didn't know that. Oh, uh, <laughs> yes. Um, and I did that scene, but it, it had these grand ideas of cosmic horror, and it just never really happened. Like, when I, when I did the scene, it just was like, oh, that wasn't nearly as horrific and mind-blowing as I thought it was going to be. Like what, it's, what, different, it's difficult to describe the indescribable, which <laughs> yeah. we, we run into yet. Um, I, I don't know. That's, 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 so I, I don't describe the indescribable. Yeah, what I do is I describe the environment around it. Mm-hmm. So find the horror in that moment. The door opens. There's darkness beyond it. Mm-hmm. The back of your neck begins to raise and goose pimples as you feel the cold breeze around you. Your mind immediately goes to your dead sister. You feel eyes upon you. You know, the idea of things around the environment, not necessarily there's a tentacle beast behind you, and then they get in D&D mode, they grab their sword, and they're yeah. ready to fight. Mm-hmm. Yeah, giving them the choice to interact with that horror, like presenting it in a very vague way, and then having, are you going to interact with it, or are you going to move on? Like, that, that adds to a lot of that system. You had a question. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. Um, what's he, how did how would you advise on like dealing with like in this world of like what we do in the shadows, like keeping the tone from veering into comedy? How would you run a comedic horror game without making it entirely comedic? I think is the question. Is that or just how to avoid that? Like people come in and their first reaction to horror is just to try and make it a joke. I'm sorry, I, I misunderstood the question. I will restate it. How would you run a horror game with new players who try to make everything into a joke? How would you keep the game from becoming a series of jokes? How would you maintain the themes? And well, my first thought is if the players want to have a bunch of comedy horror, it's not up to you to change that. You know, that would be going back to the Lines and Veils conversation, I suppose, right? Um, if you want to run a game that's not like that, then I don't know, maybe you just, you want different players? I'm not sure. I think that's a session zero conversation. Yeah. Where you're going to go over the themes of what's going to happen, and you have that discussion of what type of horror do you want, because there are different genres of horror. And um, there is, the, is comedic horror, and it can be a lot of fun to play through that, and it can still be horror. Um, but if that's not what you want to run, then you have to have that conversation of, is this the right group of players for me? Um, and, um, yeah, making a decision from there. I think uh, oh, go ahead, yeah, a lot can be done with world tone. Mm-hmm. A lot can be done with that. Like, um, how are you setting things up for your game? Is it... Is it just like in a convention hall, like in a corner, or is it something like it's in your home and you set mood, you know, you have specific lighting that goes with it? I'm, I'm making it sound like a seduction. It is, it is. So then is everybody on board with what's about to happen? <laughs> well, it okay. It's all it's horror. Exactly. I'm yeah. all I'm all talking about horror and consent with it. So it's like then then, you know, are these players going to allow themselves to drop that defensive armor, that defensive, oh, I'm going to make a joke and watch everybody laugh, and now I feel better inside because they laughed at what I said. 
you know, are, are they going to then have that vulnerability? And it's, it's literally just being on the same page with, you know, everyone. I, don't, I, don't punish comedy in, in horror, so though. Don't, don't do that because that crushes spirit. And then it's, it's just like, let them have their comedic moments. There has been many times where I've been uh, playing with uh, Knox and I, I will say something in character just to look him in the <laughs> eye <laughs> and, see, and see him kind of break, but he's also like, we're on camera right now. I'm not going to give you this. <laughs> I, I, I agree with you, obviously, but to drill kind of into it, I think I know the intention of your question, which is like, is that wrong? And it's not. Like, comedy shouldn't be avoided. You can, uh, it's a defensive mechanism. Yeah. And people are making jokes because you've started to make them uncomfortable, perhaps. And so you need to work past that. And I think as a storyteller, the best thing that you can do is to create a persona where you kind of have a wall and you don't break that wall. You set an example. Don't break character. They might break character. They may create a funny moment. Um, you are an impartial guide. And so the impartial guide maybe doesn't see the humor in that, but allows them to have it. And if you keep with your tone and you keep with your pacing, eventually those jokes are gonna stop. And, and you just work through it and don't try to deny it, you know? Just a couple comments. Uh, we were talking earlier about uh, about Pinset and everything. Uh, one of you made the mention like, well, you know, sometimes when you're approaching the group and everything, somebody may feel like awkward about saying like, well, you know, I have a problem with violence against children or whatever, but they don't want to say that in front of people. A uh, really good technique a GM that I played under did was on our session zero was that he handed out a sheet and he, and he listed a bunch of topics on that. And he says, you can lay out this topic. If this is a yellow light and like it needs to happen off scene, I don't want to have this happen in front of me or a red light because it absolutely can't happen. And they listed a bunch of topics that, you know, he immediately thought could be red light things like, you know, uh, racism, violence against children, rape, things like that, okay? And so, in, in with that being, you know, that floral stuff, it was out. Sorry, did I, cross, did I cross a red line? <laughs> All right, uh, but you, they were able to fill that out separately and turn that in, so it was in a public matter, and, you know, he, nobody had to say at any point that, you know, I have a problem with, you know, mothers being children, being killed. You know, pregnant women killer. The first thing they get handed, and then they realize, okay, this is a problem. I need to avoid this. But we also implemented the X card. So something, and even though there may have been something that they didn't think of when they built the list, they can always go over and just tap on the tap on the card, and they're like, okay, we got to stop or move on to the next scene or whatever. Um, yeah, you can totally use multiple. Yeah. Oh yeah. 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 The only thing I also said was that you know the topics for horror. You know, we, you mentioned something like, well, you know, well, you can't believe you, you, you shouldn't do this topic in force. I think top, the topics really depend on the group. You know, uh, would I, you know, you could, I, you could run up, you may have a story in mind, like saying, okay, great, I've got this, like, you know, ghost hunter storyline, World of Darkness using the new ghost hunter setting, and I'm going to have the ghost hunters go to this old plantation where they're seeing a ghost. And, they're going to, so it's going to involve elements of ghosts from that from like the ages of slavery. They're going to have so you're going to have racism perhaps being an issue in the area. You, you could have a clan involved and everything like that. There may they may need characters that themselves racist. I'm no no way saying that players should be playing racist characters. Then it should be for uh, you know, forward in that sort of storyline. So the idea of having the consent thing over the yeah, yeah, place to make sure that, that everybody's okay. Well, this is in the game. I, this is the story I should yeah. tell this group. I need to tell a different story. Yeah, I I, I would be very careful yeah. with 
running any because it's also like you know there's ghosts everywhere why are you specifically going to this plantation to re-kill slaves yeah, you know well, so it's um i i would I, there there's there's a lot to unpack there i believe the uh, young lady in the uh, green headband has a question thank you uh so i know that there are a couple different approaches to writing horror stories so i was wondering what kind of approaches you take when you start with the horror and then make the reality that it lives in versus when you're running something where you start with the reality and then find the horrific in it that's a great question so for the recording what is the difference in writing a scenario where you begin with the horrible thing and then add the setting versus having a setting and then adding a horrible thing happen to it or in that setting? What is the difference in writing? That's a writing process thing. Yeah. Yeah. Great question. That is a fantastic question. Um, I would say if, like, if I have a monster that I have to use or something that I want to be the horrific aspect of this, what I try to do is find a, find something that is extremely familiar for me to write in, whether it's a specific location that I know very well or it is a specific building or it is a specific time period that I am going to be exploring. Um, because you're taking the unfamiliar and then a familiar aspect. And I feel like that that the flow for me, because that's a, like, again, that's a writing process, that's a whole, like everybody's gonna have a different approach. That would be how I would do it, is I have this monster, this is unknown to me, so I'm gonna put it in something that's familiar to me because then what I can do is take aspects of that thing and tie it and weave it in throughout that setting to where I'm familiar enough with it where I can twist it just enough for it, for people to pick up on that um, and, and weave those threads like that. Um, so I, I have done this before um, where it's like uh, taking the, the horrific thing and then um, putting it into like normal things. Um, uh, you can actually see the video is called Hunted on the Run. Uh, it's on the it's on youtube.com slash snarled, um, something scary. With that, the story begins with uh, a werewolf who is literally hunted on the run, twisted, um, is uh, taking medicine to try to stop the change from happening, staring up at the full moon and, and knows intrinsically that he's about to do more things that he doesn't want to do and he's trying to escape so it's like that's how it begins and then moving moving forward you have a monster hunter you don't know it's a monster hunter at the time i'm giving away the story um <laughs> who is coming is like tickets yeah <laughs> and then there's this whole tension-filled exchange somebody else comes in and um and it turns out that she's a vampire but you don't know that at the time and the monster hunter with like the the person that's doing tickets is actually turns out to be the bad guy when normally for everything it's like no we want to kill the werewolves we want to kill the vampires but because we spent the time in the first half of the story humanizing this this horrible angst of not wanting to kill but being in a position where killing just feels natural 
when the transformation happens and you cannot fight your nature. To set that up, then it's like, oh wait, are the humans the monsters? Maybe we should just let them be. <laughs> yeah, so. Spoilers about. Sorry, I have to run because I've got a stream to go on. But I uh, encourage everyone to stick around because we've uh, got some giveaways that uh, from us at Chaosium here that we've got your tickets to be drawing on. Uh, I've got to go. It's lovely meeting you. It's lovely you meeting you. I'll yeah. see you again. Bye. 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 Uh, the question is so good, but you know, listening to everybody answer it, it I think it occurs to me, sir, that um, there's not a separation. You know, that you need the familiar for uh, that payoff. You know, for that horror, and then to split the two up, it, you know, depending on what those definitions are of like what you're trying to achieve, to split those up at, at the core of what you're trying to do would be, I think, a mistake. I think you need the familiar to really pay off those those moments. But when I write horror, and this is me specifically. I always look to what might be the end. Now, I, I say might be because, again, there are often times that something might veer off in a different direction, but generally I know what the horror is. What is the thing at the core of this? And then if you work in the center, you start to work backwards, knowing that the terror that the players are going to unravel has a specific payoff that might happen, but you know where that at least exists. And then you write around it All right, we have time for two more questions. I saw your hand up first, Dorinda. Yeah, um, I would just love to hear what is um, each of y'all's favorite or memorable horror uh, experience in a game that you were either in or a game that you ran. What is your favorite uh, moment in a horror game that you participated in? <laughs> There's so many, <laughs> so many. Um, one of my favorites is I did an actual play for Bluebeard's Bride, and um, that is, that is, uh, you can find that on YouTube, but I, I feel like that whole setup is just so, it's beautiful horror, is what it is, because it explores um, feminist horror and um, in a way that is, uh, you rely on your sisters within the story to be able to get through it. And there was a moment in that game where we were, we had to explore all of these dresses and like having to pull threads from these dresses and fabric from them and finding out that they're like bits and pieces of memories of all of the sisters and stuff like that was just really, really beautiful. Um, if you have not seen Bluebeard's Bride or played it, you need to. Like it is, it is so gorgeously done. So, um, you know, it's such a hard question. Uh, but if you if you run a lot of horror, everything's unique. It's hard to pick between your children, I guess. But I will say that one of my favorite moments in a horror game had nothing to do with me at all. It was about the setup and then watching the players take it and create the horror themselves. Um, I love and I think that when you can do that as a storyteller, you've, you've really hit a home run because they're in your world, they've accepted it, and they've done it. And I'm actually talking about Marquia and Luis Carrazzo. Mm -hmm. The two of them were together, and I'm not going to spoil the whole thing because I want you to watch it. It's on YouTube, uh, huntersentertainment.com. So, they, uh, <laughs> but they, the two of them, we'd spent this very long period of time, a full year, really, watching these two people build this very complex relationship. And I'm not going to say how, but the relationship dissolves in the most heart-wrenching way. 
and the way that they enacted and embodied it accepted the world and accepted the premise of the world and the horror at the core that I was talking about. And they worked it in flawlessly. It gives me goosebumps just thinking about it. Yeah. Uh, that was going to be my favorite moment, but you're just got it. So instead, I get to say one of my other favorite moments. Um, I did, I was part of a 10 month, 10 candles campaign oh. with oh, yeah. Hyper RPG. Uh, this was uh, this was pre Coloc. Uh, it was when Zach was uh, figuring out what his Coloc, you know, uh, you know, magnum opus would be, uh, and so we spent ten months, <laughs> ten candles, uh, being different characters um, because everybody dies. Everybody dies in ten candles. That is not a you do not survive that. So how do you live? So how do you live up to that point? Um, I took. Uh, a volume of it uh, while Zach and Malika were in their honeymoon. Uh, and I did the afflicted, uh, the affection, uh, A, F, the affection. And with that, I had this world where um, uh, due to lax EPA standards, uh, cockroaches uh, actually carry this disease that then uh, affects the world. And that is a type of zombieism that comes out of it, along with a hive mind mentality. And um, depending on the stage that you're at, depends on what, how your body moves and what happens with it. But I did make this curable up to a certain point, if you even realize that you had it past that point. My favorite moment in this, uh, in this campaign that I did is like, I gave them a corgi. Um, <laughs> Yeah. Please tell me you have a corgi in real life. I don't have a corgi in real life, but I obviously need one because I, 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 I put a lot of them in my game. <laughs> what do you have against corgis? <laughs> they're, they're, oh. a, they're adorable, they're frantic, and they're just so cute. Those butts. It's <laughs> All right, we have time for one more question. I saw your hand up first. Right ahead. Granted, all the playing characters consent, we've already covered lines and veils. Um, are there some ways to incorporate body order into the playing characters' arts? Yes. <laughs> are there ways to incorporate body horror into characters' arts? I love body horror. Um, uh, so that's one of the things that I, I loved writing for Vampire was body horror. Um, and actually, in one of the giveaways, Kids Guide to Monster Hunter got a consensual body horror for kids in here. So, <laughs> um, yes, um, I'll talk about this at the end a little bit. Um, so, uh, yes, you can absolutely incorporate body horror in certain ways. There are ways for you to be able to represent the things that happened to characters um, throughout their body as long as they, again, consent to that type of stuff. And you can get very creative with things. Um, you can do tattoos, you can do things with skin twisting. Sorry if anyone, <laughs> I'm not gonna go into too much detail specifically, but yes, there are ways for you to be able to do it um, and get creative with it. One of the things that I love to do is I love to follow tattoo artists and specifically bottom body modification artists because um, they will have really cool ideas for you to be able to kind of incorporate and with enough twist 
put horror into whatever they are doing and, and in a really, really cool way. So, yes, I encourage it. But that's, I like that stuff, so. I like um, infecting them with something and then showing them a final version of what they will become. Because if you, if you, that bookend, like a, like think like a, what was the popular game by Naughty Dog? They're infected with cordyceps. What is that? It has Last of Us. Last of Us, thank you. So like with Last of Us, like you, you're going through the game, you're trying not to get infected, trying not to get bit, but you run into all of these monsters at different stages and it's more and more horrific when you see. So I love to give them like, hey, oh, you just got bit, that's so bad. Oh, you know, we, we can do something about it. Oh, look, this will be the final version of you. This will be you, unless you do something to, to stop that. And then plus, in their mind, they have the worst case scenario. So as you are progressing their body and having things slough off or grow or something like that, in their head, they've seen what that final thing is. So in a way, there's an acceptance of, if I don't stop it, that's what I'm going to become. So then they can just enjoy the enjoy the journey of becoming that monster. So true. Um, I've got two. Uh, yes, the answer is yes, enthusiastically. But uh, I've got two um, suggestions and a warning with that. Uh, so when you're describing body horror, I find that it's best to just understand that it's not just visual, and to find the the sensations that accompany it. And then also, once you have that, this, what the, the symptoms of whatever the body horror issue is, when you have that and you understand that, you can describe that to your players in ways that they're not necessarily visually seeing, because eventually that might be a part of it. You know, there, there will be something that's twisting and changing, but it's better if you build it up slowly and know your pacing, know your final form. It goes back to everything we've already talked about, which is kind of knowing what your end game is for something. But the, the, the real warning I think, comes from not only consent, but also very clear and careful observation. Because again, you're dealing with things that oftentimes nobody would, I would think that that would bother them. But when you start describing teeth falling out and you know things breaking inside of your body, it tends to trigger people pretty quickly. So be very, very cautious. But yes, do it. Do it a lot. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, that uh, that concludes the panel. Uh, we do have some giveaways, so stick around for that. Um, let's give everybody on the panel a round of applause. This has been an episode of Darker Days Radio. Special thanks to Occam's Laser for the intro, outro, and new bumper music from their hit album, Nine Circles. Check out the rest of their work at occamslaser.bandcamp.com. Occam's Laser.